Hi, this is Ron Crawford, and welcome to episode number 14 of the Natural Leader Podcast, brought to you by Unleashed Potential Consulting, where we explore the challenges and benefits of authentic and inclusive servant leadership. My guest today is Jeanette Armbrust. Jeanette started her career path in the entertainment industry for BMG RCA Records before moving to Minnesota to work for V Corporation, the creators of Sesame Street Live. There, she was the National Promotion Director, coordinating the touring events throughout North America. Later, she was promoted to National Sponsorship Director. In 2001, Jeanette founded Skyline Exhibits of Central Ohio in Columbus, Ohio. After growing her company into an award-winning $7 million business, Jeanette sold the company and found herself in California, launching a new office, Skyline Exhibits Greater LA, as well as leading and growing seven Skyline locations in the Western US. After 21 years in the trade show and events industry, Jeanette left to pursue her passion, developing and growing leaders, and founded Greenlight Leadership Consulting Group. As a certified executive leadership and development coach, she enjoys developing and empowering people to impact the overall success of their organizations by leading with vision and managing with wisdom. I first met Jeanette in a class where we were both taking to achieve a coaching certification. While we have pretty different backgrounds and career experiences, we find ourselves now on very parallel paths of trying to mentor and coach the next generation of leaders. I find it's always interesting to talk to someone with a similar passion and vision as myself. So welcome to the podcast, Jeanette, and thank you for taking the time to join me. Well, thanks, Ron. I'm really excited to be here and to talk with you today. So I appreciate the invitation. Well, thank you very much. And, uh, you know, the... um, a lot was said there in the introduction in terms of your mm-hmm. background and from your bio, and I'll actually uh, post a link to your full bio because I know there's other stuff in there, a lot of uh, board uh, leadership and things, especially in a kind of nonprofit world. So I know you have really extensive experience from both, you know, the uh, the traditional business world as well as the, the nonprofit. And so I'm really interested just kind of for you to take a few moments and kind of tell us your career story. How did you get into some of those different uh, different areas of, of entertainment and event planning and things like that? And, and how did you see yourself progress through that? Yeah, well, you know, as you look back on your career, as you have the benefit of age, um, I think you see the thread that is woven into each career move. Um, and you see that the opportunities arise if you're looking for them and you, t- you take every opportunity that you have to learn and grow. So I think, you know, for me, I started out very young in my early 20s, right, in um, the exciting world of entertainment out in Los Angeles, working for BMG in a division that was their children's division. That was at the time where Rafi and probably some of your podcast listeners don't even know about that. But when children's entertainment was really, really big for a while there. And so I worked in that division and I did all the booking for their um, artists. And then I was, um, I got engaged and my fiance at the time was moving back to Minnesota. So obviously I was going with him. And so I, I took the opportunity to take a risk. And I asked my boss if I would be able to open up a business in Minnesota and actually do the job that I was doing for them, but doing it in Minnesota under my own company. And they said yes, which was kind of shocking. So um, I I opened up a company at, I think I was like 23, 24 years old um, and did that job. It was called Carousel Management um, and did that job for a couple of years. And then I was, I bumped into kind of the Sesame Street people at the time and they asked me to come over. So I, you know, I took the, the, opportunity to not have that constant grind and went into kind of the corporate world of working at Sesame Street because I, I, you know, was kind of wanting a little bit of more calm as I was starting a family. And I loved that job. I tell you, it was hard. I learned work, work ethic. I learned marketing. I learned financial basics, but it was hard um, because I didn't have a good leader. The person that was in charge of that company was very, very tough. Now, looking back now, I think I learned so much from that being under somebody that was like that, but um, it really gave me thick skin and pushed me to uh, just really dig in and learn as much as I could from that opportunity. And um, when 
I look back on it now, I, I always thought he was just mean, but he, he saw something in me. And I think that's what you and I are doing now with leaders. He saw something in me that pushed me hard. And at the time being young, I'm like, he's just mean. But now I look back and go, gosh, I'm so grateful that he did that. And I actually went back like 10 years later and thanked him for that. When I was running my skyline office, I happened to be in Minnesota and pop back in and saw him, but long story short, that led me to, um, kind of having a little bit of stability, learning some things that I probably wouldn't have learned otherwise. And then one day my, um, husband came home and said, um, you know, skyline exhibits, which is where he worked at the time is looking to open up an office in Columbus, Ohio. And I had done the Columbus market for Sesame street. And I knew what a brilliant market that was. It's like one of those untapped, um, resources, you know, no major league football team. So it tends to get overlooked in marketing, but a capital city and had a lot of things going for it. So I jumped, I said, let's do it. Let's go open up this business. So we had a, a three-year-old and a one-year-old picked up our, our family in, in Minnesota, moved to Ohio, knew nobody, sold our house, dumped the money into the company and just kind of went you know, all in just jumped. And, um, we started our business September 1st, 2001. And if you remember what happened 10 days later, September 11th happened. And, uh, so that was a really, I remember going, is the ink dry on all those business agreements? Because, um, this is going to be really, really rough, but it ended up being a good time to start a business. So, you know, built that business for 16 years and ended up being blessed to sell it in 2017 with 28 employees. And we were $7 million and had a really um, sustainable business that was worth some good money. And so decided to sell it at the top of the game rather than wait, um, you know, for it to kind of start to go. I felt like I'd taken it as far as I could and um, it was time to sell it. So sold the company and the people that bought it was private equity company asked me to go out to LA and kind of repeat it again. So I got a contract to do that for a while and started Skyline LA, as you mentioned, and then COVID hit. And that's when I had a major kind of epiphany, like I, I just, I need to do something on my own again. So that's where you and I met because I decided, you know, I'm going to take my skills and my failures and my successes and my knowledge and really help other leaders grow themselves and grow the organizations that they're in, whether they own them or not. Um, you know, all the same lessons that I learned and the mistakes I made and the triumphs that I had were all really based on leadership skills. And I think that's the game changer for a lot of people that people don't realize. Right. Yeah, well, really a, a, a neat background. And um, I wanted to just jump back a little bit and say, yeah, um, sure. I, I'm, I'm not sure that a lot of the listeners would know, but I know Rafi, <laughs> my, especially my son grew up with Rafi. So yep. I, I have uh, a mixed emotion of both uh fond memories and a little bit of PTSD from right, uh, the wiggles, what rattles, yeah, yeah, what yeah, rattles around in my head. So <laughs> to know that you were uh, in, involved with that as well as Sesame Street Live, which I took my kids to. So that's kind of a, a neat overlap. Um, one of the things about your whole story mm -hmm. that's very interesting, and I think it's very relevant to today, because of course, today we have um, so much focus on the great resignation and, the, and so much focus on people just kind of almost jumping spot to spot and, and, you know, half, you know, um, searching for something and half just looking for something different. What were some of the things that kind of went into your thought process? Because obviously you took some major leaps of faith uh, in a, in a yeah. couple of those, those steps there. What was, what was your thought process that kind of uh, guided that or, or influenced those, those decisions? I, you know, I remember thinking about, um, leaving. And, you know, when our kids were very, very young, I had a great life. Like I could have stayed in Minnesota, raised the kids, had a great life. But I think number one, I have that entrepreneurial spirit in me that I think is born in a lot of people that were just never satisfied. And I remember listening to that song that I think it's Leanne Womack, I Hope You Dance, where it talks about never settle for the path of least resistance. And I still remember being in the car going, that's me. Like, I have to do it. I, I have to jump. I can't just 
sit still. And so that really has fueled me in a lot of my decisions to be a risk taker, which for a lot of women, men are very good at being risk takers, but women are very risk averse. And so I'm kind of an anomaly to that. And then I'm not afraid to just jump and try it. Like what's the worst that can happen? You fail and you start over and maybe you owe some people some money because you took out a loan or, but it's not the end of the world. So that always plays in my head as I kind of evaluate the opportunity, like what would happen? What's the worst that could happen? Mm -hmm. And if I'm still okay with that, I jump. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say uh, that characteristic of risk taker, especially uh, not just a woman, but a woman with young children, um, you know, is, is another one of those factors that I think often comes in. But like you said, it, it, you have to be authentic and, and you know, um, be true to yourself. So, yeah. Well, yeah. as I used to say to my salespeople when I was, um, when I owned both Ohio and LA, like you're never going to hit a home run if you don't sw take a bat, step up to the bat and take a swing, you know, yeah. step up to the plate. So that's the thing is that I think a lot of people we sit and we want the good things that happen that come with risk taking and sticking yourself out there, but we're afraid to step up to the plate. And so sometimes you just have to do it and go, what's the worst that can happen? I strike out. Okay. I'll start over again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah good point. I mean, it, it's, uh, it is, if you don't take the chance, you won't recognize the reward. So mm -hmm. um, you touched on this a little bit in terms of talking about um, one of your first leaders that was really kind of um, in a bit of a negative way, a positive influence uh, in mm -hmm. terms of mm -hmm. just their perspective. And I think that's something that we'll, we'll discuss a little bit more. But um, were there any other leaders along the way that influenced you significantly in terms of either um, setting your motivation or, or developing your kind of leadership perspective or style? Yeah, you know, I, I've been lucky to be to have surrounded myself or have people come into my life that are just some natural born leaders, which I love the title of your podcast. Um, but then I've also had, as you said, those kind of difficult leaders. Um, I think the one at Sesame Street was difficult in the fact that it was because he pushed me and I wasn't used to that. Um, but I think, you know, those kind of people that want to see you squirm a little bit just because they know it's, it's testing you by fire. So, you know, when you're young, you go, oh, he's just a, you know, yeah. insert a word there. But yep. um, looking back, I'm like, wow, he actually, I think there was a method to his madness. Um, but the other people that have influenced my um, career over the years, I, I realized early on in owning Skyline, Ohio, that I didn't know what I didn't know. And, and I was doing the best I could for like the first few years. And then about year five, which is pretty typical for starting a new business, you turn the corner and you kind of go, wow, it's happening. Um, so I felt like I needed to get, get with other like-minded people because at the time my friend group and my people that I hung around with were all the friends parents of the friends of my kids. So they, a lot of them were stay at home moms and some of them had, you know, different kinds of jobs, but none of them were dealing with workers comp issues, trying to sign a lease on a new building, you know, payroll taxes, all those things that as a business owner, I was like, wow, it was what was overwhelming me. So I joined an association that really was a game changer for me. And that was NABO. And you mentioned, I, I do serve on the, on the national board for that national organization. It's a, the National Association of Women Business Owners. And so I joined the local chapter in Columbus. And that's where I really felt like I started to have mentors and other people that were around that I could kind of join a mastermind group with and talk through some of these situations. And that's where I ended up finding my business coach that I had for, oh, at least 10 plus years um, and really was a difference maker for me. And I think that's why I've chosen to kind of move into that path now that I've kind of semi-retired and decided to have my passion project now is that that was such a game changer for me. And you and I do that in our, in our work now that that I think was what really helped me. Um, then also the, the president of Skyline was just an amazing servant leader. He led with his core values and his purpose. So I learned from him. Um, so there have been a few, but I would say probably the, the like-minded groups and then having a coach was really key for me. 
So what do you think um, specifically were some of the things that your coach uh, kind of brought to you or, or changed in you? Um, well, first off, it was just the people management. Um, I'm just such a big believer in culture. And, you know, you can set strategy all day long, but as the saying goes, culture eats strategy for lunch. And I truly believe that. And so a lot of it was um, having, you know, that interpersonal dynamics and setting up the company in a way that was sustainable without me, because I always had an exit strategy in mind. And so really having that interpersonal dynamic somebody to go to and talk to because it's lonely at the top and you have nobody you can't walk in and talk to your employees about things you have to be able to talk to somebody that is removed from the situation that can give you both sides and even look at you and go call you out right that's part of what our job is is to go let's see it from a different side here can you think about it this way Um, So that was really, really helpful. And I ended up in turn hiring her to work with my top managers, especially about two years before I was going to sell the company because I knew I needed to really start to develop them as leaders that when I was plucked out, the company still survived. And so that that was one thing. And then going through the sale process, I mean, it it is so overwhelming and daunting, especially when you're being bought by a private equity firm and um, having her to talk me off the ledge, tell me it was going to be okay. uh, Just all those things was just instrumental, I think, in going, coming out on the other side and not literally, you know, losing it. Um, Because there was just, we could do a whole podcast on just that whole selling process, which is something that I'm really focused on in Greenlight, is kind of helping people plan and execute their exit strategy because it's it's hard, very hard. Yeah, and I think that that's a point that is really related to leadership in general, which is that, especially from a servant leadership standpoint, that perspective on trying to make sure that something does sustain beyond you, right? And having that perspective that, this is not something that I just built just for me and that I just want to walk away from and well, whatever happens, whatever happens, right? Yeah. Leaders need to have that kind of perspective of whether you call it succession planning or whether you call it survival training or whatever it is, right? You know, something mm-hmm. has to be um, to be there because a part of the mark of a, of a leader, especially a good leader is what happens after they leave, right? So yeah. it's, um, yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that we, we jointly, we collectively do as, as coach. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to kind of, again, go back to a little bit was um, how do you think that that influence model has changed that, you know, go back to that Sesame street leader that you had and kind of their approach. Do you think that that model still, uh, still works today? Do you think it, it's still something that uh, you, you see a lot? I hope I don't see it a lot. I think that it isn't sustainable. I mean, that's the whole carrot and the stick, right? Um, and I think you do get a lot more buy-in, especially now we have different generations, you know, such a multi-generational workforce, but a different generation moving in to the workforce. And I really think that it's about for them, especially it's about feeling good about what they're doing at work and wanting to contribute and wanting to um, feel successful in a way that's not about a paycheck. It's, it's about contributing to an organization and doing good for the world and the planet. So I think if you come at it as a leader from just beating it in, you will follow me or else thing, you're, you're just not gonna get very far. And in fact, I would always have people, I mean, in Columbus, Ohio, I'll toot, toot this, the Skyline, Ohio office horn for a little bit. When, when we started that, that office was, I mean, zero, there was nothing, right? 28 people. We were doing more business than larger markets like Chicago, Dallas, Los Angeles. Um, and people would always say, how are you doing such an amazing business in Columbus, Ohio? Like it's a small market. And I would say it's the people like I've built a culture and a devoted team that honestly, when they sold it, the private equity firm said, we had no idea that these people would walk a hot 
rock across hot coals for you. And it was very, very difficult on them when they left because I didn't have turnover and you build success in a company when you're not having to constantly backfill your people and people don't leave bad jobs. They leave bad managers. So, you know, having an, a culture where they knew that they were loved and they were trusted and they were given responsibility with accountability. And we were all marching to the same beat with the vision ahead of us knowing where we were going, it was magical and things happen. And not only was it magical for the people that worked there, but it was magical for our customers because they didn't leave. You know, the average cycle of a customer is about seven years. We had customers that were there the entire 16, 17 years that I owned it and are still there today wow. because of what was built, the foundation that was built there and just the level of, of culture. And so back to your question, I think if you're one of those tyrant leaders, lead or else, you're going to have a really hard time sustaining a workforce and then sustaining a business because you're going to be constantly filling seats and that's mm -hmm. hard and costly. Yeah. And I think that's one of the great opportunities, you know, to plug our business a little bit, you know, uh, for coaches is to help mm -hmm. people to make that transition because some people that's, that's all they know. And that's what I come across remarkably even today is I'll come across organizations where emerging leaders, new leaders put into position, they feel like, well, I now have to become a tyrant, right? Because mm -hmm. that's what a leader is, because that's what, you know, was demonstrated to me. And um, to your point, that's, um, it's not building a sustainable culture. It's not building really a, a, a sustainable relationship, but. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, that goes back to the coaching. Sorry. But, no. you know, I left Sesame street. That was the only model that I had at the time of a leader. Right. So I remember being in a mastermind group in Nabo when I'm owning Skyline, Ohio. And I remember saying something about, I think we were dealing with, uh, work times, like they wanted flex time. Okay. And I'm like, no, we're open eight to five. You're going to come eight o'clock to five o'clock. And so I'm saying this in my mastermind group. And this one woman goes, you might want to rethink that. And she kind of <laughs> called me out on it. And so to your point, Ron, if you don't have somebody that goes, Ooh, you might want to, you might want to rethink, like what could be a better idea right. there if you don't have that, you don't know any better. And so that's like you said, where a great coach or advisor comes in and says, let's think this through and gives you another option that you might not even know. Right. Yeah. I know you've heard me say this a few times in some of our interactions, but I call it holding up the mirror for someone, right? Um, it's not necessarily going back at somebody and saying what you're doing is wrong. It's more holding up the mirror and saying, is this really what you wanted to look like in this circumstance? Exactly. Right. And I, I think that's a, a big value of coaches. Yeah. So um, other C word that you've been talking about a lot, and I want to explore a little bit is, is culture. And um, I'm very intrigued to know, you know, you have a, a background that really is rich in some examples of, of successfully implementing. I hate to say implementing because, of course, culture is something that you can't really implement. You, you have to foster it, nurture it. But what are some of your, uh, you know, top three, if you will, tips for how to instill a good culture in an organization? Yeah, I think the first thing that you have to define is your core values, mm -hmm. uh, you know, your core values of the company. And that really sets the tone for the culture. And then from there, you have to hold people accountable to living within those core values. You have to hire to those core values. So, you know, for us at Skyline, it was humility, integrity, customer service, and team. And so those were the guiding principles that always um, kind of led how we interacted with each other and how we interacted with our, our customers. So that I think is the first thing. And then, and then as a leader, you know, leaders set the tone for the culture. Um, and the culture is what drives the behavior of the organization. So the leaders, we're leading that culture and we're setting it. And if we're setting it from the core values, then that's great. But for me, it was always too about leading with love. And I think I alluded to that. And I'm not meaning that whole, like, I love you, man, kind of thing in the office. But my team at in, in Sky, both Skyline offices knew that I had their best interests in mind always, not only the interest of the organization, but I really cared about them. And so I had, I had people working for me that um, 
I always would say working with me actually that were, you know, single moms, um, some people that had some really difficult challenges outside of the office. And they knew when they came there that they were accepted for who they were. They were appreciated for the job that they did. And I was really working to just try to continue to grow this company. So they had a way to put food on the table and feed their families. So, you know, leading with love was, um, was, kind of one of my guiding principles. There's a great quote. There's a book actually, the same title, do what you love in the service of people that love what you do. And that really has always been one of my guiding principles. And then, then from there, I just kind of let it un- unfold and it does because um, culture will build upon itself. Mm-hmm. So I know one of the other challenges that when people look at the the concept of culture and especially building or improving a culture, especially, um, is how do you measure it? So what were some of the things um, that you would use that were indicators to you that you could kind of point at and either as specific examples or just kind of a, uh, a feeling, right? Because I mean, obviously we know culture is not something that we can quantify. We can't measure it in parts per million or anything like that, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. it really is kind of a... Uh, uh, an environmental type of thing. So what were some of the things that you looked for or that you recognized as an indicator of good culture or health? Yeah, that's a really great question. I think, you know, culture happens when you're not looking, mm-hmm. you know, culture happens when you're not there. So when I would be gone on a trip or when I would be at a business meeting, or sometimes when I just wouldn't be in the office, if things fell apart and the, and it wasn't sustaining to that level than I expected, then, then that's a culture problem. Um, so that would be a signal for me. If there was a lot of um, interactions that were just not appropriate, or I mean, cause we're all human, um, that would come back to, we're not having teamwork. Um, the decisions that were made, you know, I empowered the leaders in my company to make a decision that they felt was best and if it wasn't the one that I would have made, they would never be, you know, chastised for that. I would teach them um, how to kind of grow from that. But, you know, having that humility, modeling the humility, modeling the integrity, and then watching what happens when you're not there, I think is a, is one of the leading factors of culture. Um, and then I also had a culture, we had like a culture team that would rotate every few months and they would set up the fun activities, whether it was, you know, the ice cream truck rolling up to the front of the building, everybody gets ice cream or or playing ping pong or armchair Olympics, um, you know, setting those kind of things and doing a lot of give back things to the community. That was also a driver of culture. If that was continuing on and people were having fun at what they were doing, then I, you know, I recognize that things were, were going well. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that you, you reference uh, having fun and business success. So mm-hmm. it's uh you know, I think that's, uh, again, one of those things that's offer, often counterintuitive to leaders is, well, you know, work, it's supposed to be hard. It's supposed to, you know, I've often said from a, a generational s- standpoint, you know, there's a whole generation that looks at younger generations and that's like, why do you want to find satisfaction and enjoyment in work? Why do you think work's supposed going to be fun? You know, mm-hmm. work's not supposed to be fun. Work's supposed to suck. That's what we call it work, right? Yeah. And so it's interesting that you, it, specifically tied those together of having fun at work and and having success. So do you have any specific kind of examples, maybe not again, from a metric standpoint of something that is, you know, here's where we were having fun and what resulted from that? Yeah, I have, I have tons of examples in that. And actually fun was, was one of my final core values um, that we had on there. Like if you're not having fun at work, who wants to go there for eight to 10 hours and, and, you know, devote themselves to something. I mean, obviously you have to have that goal in mind and then the company is a company, it's a business. They want, they want to make money, um, but you need to be able to have some fun while you're doing it. So we would have every month an activity, our most fun one was in February, being in the trade shows and events, that's right in the height of the what we call the busy season. And I would notice one year I noticed 
it was getting really chippy around the office, like really chippy. And so I just said, um, tomorrow we're closing the office at three. You know, people were like, what? We can't do that. No, we're closing the office at three. It's mandatory. We're going bowling. You guys are going to get your frustrations and anger out on the bowling pins and not on each other. And so, you know, by me as the leader setting the tone that it's more important for us to close for two hours and go have some time together rather than keep the grind going set the tone right away. And then by the end of that bowling session, people were laughing and having a great time. And people that were at each other's throats, you know, two hours ago were yucking it up. And, and I noticed a change. So every February, we called it FU February, which just meant follow up to January, which was our busy thing, but we called it FU February, we would go bowling. And that was, you know, something that was never missed and really, really really, really loved and being able to have fun. The other one that stands out is every December, we would adopt families in the Columbus area through the Buckeye Ranch. And um, it was kids that were, you know, taken away from their parents and, and really tragic situations. And so I would meet everybody at Target. I would hand them a $100 gift card and I would say to whom much is given, much is required. And they would have a name and they would go buy that. And then we would meet stuff for that person. And then we would meet back at the office and wrap the gifts and have hot cocoa and play the Grinch on the big screen and, you know, kind of hang out. And that was something that was their most fun um, event that they looked forward to every December was coming together. And most people would dump their own money in on top of it um, to buy a bike or whatever the kids needed. So, you know, you can infuse your culture with fun and still be very successful and have as much, if not more success, because now you've got buy-in from your employees. Right. So one of the things that I often get asked, because I talk a lot about um, making the workplace an, an enjoyable place, uh, a fun place. So what do you what do you do to kind of counteract people that kind of take, try to take advantage of that or people that respond in the wrong way that kind of don't really, uh, you know, buy into the whole concept of, okay, well, you know, I have to work too, I guess is the, the other side, right? Because that's, that's the other part you create, yeah. you take it too far. Now it's just a, a play zone, right? And there isn't a sense of that commitment to, what the business needs, which is obviously still driving to some business results. So, yeah, I mean, we had, I think that comes with goal setting and setting your objectives and everybody realizing what their goals are, you know, their weekly goals, their monthly goals. And, and that doesn't have to be just for salespeople. Like I would set the, the goals for the company in January and everybody knew where we were going and everybody knew their part in achieving those goals. Mm -hmm. And so you, you can take your foot off the gas pedal a little bit, but if you take it off all the way, the team members around you are going to speak up. Um, it didn't even really need to get to me because there was kind of accountability around everybody and that it's work hard, play hard for a reason. Um, it's okay to play hard, but we also got to work hard right? Um, because we got goals to achieve. And, um, and I think that just builds on it as we started to win awards and and hit some big RFPs and get accounts like that is just contagious. And then the company starts to go, this is awesome. We're being so successful and we're having fun at the same time. Yeah. So I think it kind of. Uh, in some respects, monitors itself once it's going. But as a leader, if you do have somebody taking advantage of it, it's your responsibility to pull them aside and say, hey, I know you enjoy the fun that we're having here, but I also need you to get your work done too. So we got to, you know, we got to swing the pendulum back a little bit more um, there. And I did also have people that didn't want to participate in certain things. And that's okay too. You can't push somebody, but boy, does that that also calls itself out. So once you have a strong culture and you're hiring to that, if you make a wrong hire, it, it, it is noticeable right away because yeah. yeah. they just don't fit in. Yeah. Yeah. I think that uh, the things that I've observed in those types of cultures is first of all, that camaraderie, that togetherness, mm -hmm. it, it builds a sense of accountability and mm -hmm. collaboration naturally, right? Because people yeah, get to know it. each other better and they get to um, commit to each other a little bit and they want to see each other be successful, right? So that accountability, it really, it, it 
starts, it, it kind of self-manages itself, right? Now mm -hmm. people, it's not just the leader that necessarily has to redirect somebody if they're having a little bit too much fun and not focusing on the work. The, yeah. the organization almost does that organically. I think the other thing that's really important from a leadership standpoint is this is really one of those examples of vulnerability. And a lot of times vulnerability is one of those words, right, that we kind of think of as, oh, well, that means that I put myself out there. I tell somebody when I'm having a hard day or something like that, really. I mean, really, as a leader, vulnerability is also, hey, I'm taking the chance that we can have some fun and still be successful, right? Mm -hmm. The counter to that earlier leader that you talked about before, which was, you know, well, if I don't keep my nose to the grindstone and keep, you know, whipping the, cracking the whip, um, we're not going to get anywhere, right? I mean, this is basically saying, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to be vulnerable and create this environment where one of our core values, as you said, is to have fun. And I realize mm -hmm. that that's maybe something that's counterintuitive to a lot of especially proven business models for success. But um, I think that goes a long way to building credibility um, with a leader as well, because yeah. people appreciate that um, almost what's viewed as outreach, right? Or, or it's really, it's fundamentally servant leadership, right? I, I want you to enjoy your time here. I want to serve you by, you know, helping you to find some, some value and some, some meaning and purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. Cool. So we've talked a lot about the successes and, and the growth and everything associated with your business, but obviously as a business owner, you always have challenges. So um, any examples of really significant challenges and how your leadership was really kind of challenged in those circumstances? Yeah, I mean, obviously COVID was a huge one, but um, I think everybody had COVID challenges and we, I mean, we had to scale the business back 90% and then now rebuild it. But, you know, the 2008 recession for me was really challenging because we were just about seven-ish years, seven, eight years, seven years into the business. And we were starting to get some traction. And then the, the recession hit, obviously marketing is the first thing that gets cut. So um, I was really concerned about slowing down the momentum of the business. So I, I did a couple things as a, as a leader, obviously tried to cut costs and renegotiated the lease of the building we were in and stuff. But then I called the team together and I said, listen, I, we're going to have a challenging, some challenging time here. And I really don't want to lay off, have to lay off anybody. Um, so I'm asking if you will take a reduction in your salary temporarily, I'm going to take one too, so that I don't have to lay off somebody. And then when, when the recession is done, I will make it up to you. I will, I will make you whole again. Mm -hmm. So we took a silent vote and everybody voted. And so everybody took a reduction in their salary and we got through the 2008 recession with, um, without having to lay anybody off. And what was so brilliant about it was that when it turned back on, the first thing that goes off is marketing. The first thing that turns back on is marketing. I had my entire team intact. We just hit the ground running. And from there, we went into three solid years of like 80% growth straight up because we were ready and almost like poised, just hit the, you know, un unmute the mute button and, and go again. And I'll never forget the end of the really good year when things were, were good. I, I lived up to my promise. I gave everybody a bonus that was making them whole from what they had sacrificed um, earlier and thanked them for helping to save, save the company, but also grow the company. So I think as a leader, you know, that was, that was a really challenging time for me, but one that I'm very proud of in the fact that I felt like I made a good decision that not only helped me in the moment, but also helped the company catapult forward. Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. that that's really a great uh, example story of something that is really one of my pet peeves about kind of the management perspective of leadership. And that is this idea of leadership courage, right? Mm -hmm. Because what you just told was a story of leadership courage, right? To, yeah. to actually the easy thing to do there, which would have been the typical business thing was, well, we're going to have to reduce staff by 40%. So here's the people that get laid off and everybody else just pick up their work and, and do, you know, the courageous thing was actually to go and commit to something that you had no idea that you could actually fulfill, right? right. You committed right. to make everybody whole with only 
the faith that, yeah, it's going to come back someday. And when it does, we're even going to be better and we're going to be able to make this. So that's courageous leadership, right? Yeah. Um, well, and, and it's funny because the, everybody don't think everybody wasn't all in, in, in seeing this thing turn around. And, you know, to even ask, I was really surprised. Not one person was upset about it. Like, I mean, I mean obviously we're, we were all struggling, but what was their other option? Get laid off. Right. Um, or see their friends get laid off. And so it was kind of shocking to me. And I guess just really now, as I'm reflecting back on it, made me think, you don't know unless you ask. And is there a way, be, don't, be, don't be shocked and don't be afraid on how committed your team will be into helping you move the ball forward. Right. Well, let's, let's pivot a little bit and talk then, you know, all that experience and all those different things. Uh, how do you apply that forward now? So obviously you're in a much smaller context, at least for now, right? You know, we're kind of on our own here doing our, our own thing from an individual standpoint, but obviously there's the opportunity potentially to, to grow that into something bigger, but what, what's your vision for where you want to take your next, what I'll really call mission. Yeah, well, I'm glad you said mission because that really is what what I feel like it is. I always said that the, the my teams and the companies that I owned were my mission field because you know there were just so many so many, it's people right and you're serving them and you're helping them and you're making a difference in their life. But now I'm I'm really in a unique position after selling my company that I can pursue my passions. And so it really is exciting for me because my passion really is to, to develop people and grow people and help them be better leaders and better, um, you know, better leaders in general, whether they own the business or they are leading in a company um, and to really see the impact that they can make in their own organizations. And so that's why I decided to start Green Light Leadership Consulting Group and really just helping leaders realize the impact they make and helping them be the best leaders that they, they can be. I read in a book, um, and I can't remember what it was, maybe it was a podcast, um, that you know when you, when you climb the ladder of success and you get to the top, your job after that is to climb back down the ladder and hold the ladder for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so that really resonated with me. Um, and that's what I feel like green light is my vehicle to do that, to use my experience, my success and my failures. Cause I, you know, I made a lot of them, um, to help others, other leaders reach their dreams. So I'm letting it grow organically in just, you know, not, not, um, pushing too, too hard, but at the same time, you know, as you heard earlier in this podcast, I'm an entrepreneur that just, it, I think it will always be in me. So I, I have a hard time slowing down. And so I'm giving, have given myself a little bit of time to slow down, but now I'm putting the, pushing the pedal down and, and moving full steam ahead. Mm -hmm. So in terms of that uh, full steam ahead, as, as you envision the, the new model and obviously new clients and new people to talk to, um, what is the, what's the core values you're going to try to instill in them? I mean, you, you talked before about uh, the, the values that you've had in other companies. Is it, does it transferable? Is it something that you can, you can try to project into others? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, as I said earlier, as leaders, it's lonely at the top and it's hard to find time in your business to get up to what I would always call that 36,000 feet and be able to take a really hard look at things and strategize and plan and work on the things that truly matter in business, which in my mind is not always the financials of the company. And so really with Greenlight, I just want, I want to coach, but also advise and mentor um, and and consult business owners with their end game in mind, as I mentioned, kind of not only leading now, but building a strong company um, now with the knowledge that it is an investment. And someday, most people hope that they're going to carry on that, in, that investment and either sell it or transition it to their children or, you know, whatever that looks like and maybe get some sort of a payout, but they want it to carry on without them. So, um, you know, I, I've created what I call three programs within Greenlight. And one of them is really working on leadership skills to grow and scale your business. 
The other one that I am actually working on right now is that green light for exit and getting ready, helping people kind of get their business ready to exit because we do focus so much on the financial side of it. And as somebody that's gone through it twice, that is not that really isn't necessarily what you need to focus on. It isn't the only thing that makes your business valuable. Um, And then also helping people launch their companies because I've done that so much, but I've really been focused more on just working with those leaders and growing and scaling and helping them reach their goals. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the other things I wanted to touch with you was, uh, you know, a lot of what you're focused on, especially in those three key focus areas or, or situations you might even characterize. Um, do you view your impact in those as primarily consultant, as coach, or as a combination of the two? Yeah. And uh, you and I have talked about this before. We have. <laughs> yeah. I I feel like it needs to be a hybrid. I yeah. had a hybrid. I mean, I, I there is a place for a coach, which as you and I as coaches know, it's, you know, really believing that the answer is inside. And a lot of times it is, and we just have to pull it out. But there are times in a relationship that I think an advisor is completely appropriate, especially when you're talking to somebody that has been there, done that. Um, And so I think there's significant value into stepping out of that coaching role for a while and actually consulting and advising. And so that's why I developed those programs. They're more consulting programs, not coaching programs. So, I mean, we do a little bit of coaching with it, obviously, but really focused on kind of taking you through the modules of getting your company ready to sell and, you know, getting your company ready to scale, working on culture, working on sales playbook, that kind of stuff. So I, yeah, I think it's gotta be a hybrid. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I kind of brought that up with a little tongue in cheek because of the fact I know, as you said, we have had that conversation before and, and I tend to agree with you. A lot of the clients that I have, they, they hire me to be a coach, but really what they're looking for is my expertise. And so I have to be careful to walk that line of being, you know, a consultant where I need to be, but a coach primarily. And so to that point, I, I'm just going to put you on the spot because I know you know the answer. And I've actually had this conversation several times individually with people uh, trying to explain it. But um, how would you explain the role of a coach? And then specifically in the contrast of a role of a consultant? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in my mind, a coach is, um, our role as a coach is to ask really important questions to get our client to, you know, think about things differently, come from a different angle, uh, really kind of be more introspective to find the answers to the questions that they, they might have. And so it's more guiding them and not necessarily telling them more ask. Um, consulting to me is more of the tell of this is how I suggest, maybe we look at it this way. Um, here's a suggestion. Here's something that worked for me. Here's something I've seen done before. Let's explore that together as opposed to just asking the questions. Yeah. Did I pass? <laughs> Very good. Yes. And that, that's that's essentially the same get answer I give all the time, but I've never had it recorded anywhere. So now there I have the answer now recorded. <laughs> so if anybody asks me, I can just say, well, just go to this podcast to this time frame, and there's a perfect example or a perfect uh, description. Awesome. So thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, getting ready to wrap up here. What's uh, you know, in your background, what are some of your favorite stories? What it, I always like to try to end things with, you know, cause they're so humanizing to be able to tell a story. You've already told lots of stories. So maybe you've kind of used up your favorites, but do you have anything that really kind of encapsulates your leadership perspective uh, in a story? Yeah. yeah. You know, I think it, for me, it all culminated when I exited um, my business. And then again, when I kind of exited the second time, Um, after my kind of contract LA kind of situation went out. Um, But I was so reminded about, again, it's all about the people and that, you know, they are our greatest asset as a leader, a business owner, executive, whatever. And as I mentioned earlier, I I truly believe that your company is your mission field. Um, So I was reminded as I was exiting because I received so many 
wonderful, um, it was almost like a eulogy, Ron, which was kind of yeah. <laughs> sad, but it was very yeah. sweet. I just had such wonderful, wonderful notes and letters and not just from employees, but from customers even of just thanking me. I mean, as I looked back on, was very reflective. I mean, I remember taking a chance on a young man that had a felony record. He'd gotten himself in trouble with the wrong people. I hired him in the warehouse, gave him a start and he's thriving now. You know, I, I remembered the single moms that, you know, started at entry-level positions, one that went on to actually help me run the company and, you know, bought a house and was able to kind of take care of her family in a great way. And, you know, I, I had, you just never know, I always said I could write a book, but you never know the things that people are struggling with in your organization and the example in the light that you are as the leader there. I mean, I had somebody that struggled with depression, suicide, drug addiction. Like we had all these things going on under our roof that some people to this day might not have even realized that that was happening in the company, but it was. And as a leader, I was helping to navigate that and really investing in those people to try to get them through it and still keep them as a a part of the company. So I think, you know, as a leader, your job, my job is to meet people where they are, to love them, to give them a reason to show up every day and build, help you build your business that is sustainable. And hopefully and someday, you know, will be profitable for you. So, you know, when I walked away, I was just really blessed by the notes that came back of encouragement of how I encouraged them and didn't even, didn't even realize that I was just, just showing up every day as the best leader that I could be. So I think that just reminded me success comes from building other people up and that's what I want to continue to do. Yeah. I really appreciate that message. I mean, I, I, in terms of that, I can't say anything else other than kind of amen. Right. I mean, that, that is the, that's the end of that chapter, but it's a great indicator. And I think it's one of the things that is really one of the challenges of promoting or encouraging this idea of servant leadership and of um, outreach and, and care, compassion, however you want to characterize it, right, is because it's not instantly measurable or overall quantifiable, right? It, it really comes out in very subjective ways you know, how do you, how do you measure a changed life, right? Mm -hmm. How do you measure someone who um, got a chance, you know, like a a felon got a chance to actually make a better life and actually took that chance and and made it Mm -hmm. right. And in that person, in that person's background, you're one of the most important people ever to them, right. Right. For taking that chance, but it's not something that we can we don't put those on a plaque. We don't, no. you know, put those in measurements. We don't have bar charts that give us the metrics of how many people's lives we saved, right? I mean, it mm-hmm. it literally is just something that it takes a, uh, a commitment and a faith that there's going to be a, an outcome to it. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it's what um, scares a lot of, especially new leaders, because they're so focused on, well, how am I going to prove my effectiveness? How am I going to prove my worth? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to, uh, you know, big, big Simon Sinek fan. And, and so, you know, we look at the infinite game, right? It's, it's mm-hmm. the game that we're in is an infinite one. And we need to, we need to treat it that way and not look at things as, as quarterly measures, but how can we make these, uh, make these impacts lasting? And I think everything that you've talked about today, it's really given great uh, examples of those, you know, the different examples that you've talked about, the cultures that you've built and the companies that you've built. So I really uh, appreciate and thank you for, for sharing those with us. Thanks, Ron. It was great to be with you today. And thanks for the opportunity and to anybody out there, especially the young leaders that are starting out, I would say just show up with humility and build trust every day. That's all you can do. Yep. Very good. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Ron. Well, thank you again, Jeanette, and thanks everyone for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the Natural Leader Podcast, check out each new episode, and let your friends know about it too. You can find the relevant links from this discussion, including Jeanette's bio, in the caption for this episode. If you would like to contact me regarding this or any other episode, my contact information can be found on the Unleashed Potential website, unleash-potential.org. Until the next episode, I'll see you.